It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Very unique uh, challenge, and I was just explaining it to the group in front of me here in the Ellerslie Chapel, and that is that uh, we had lightning strike, I'm guessing, is the, uh, the culprit, lightning strike our chapel, and it affected our electronics on the front end of our chapel, so our two projectors are out. And so I have my computer up here, because people are always like, how does Eric speak without notes? And I, then I have to admit, you know, I wish you could just think that I could just memorize all my messages and I don't need notes, but technically I do create notes, they're just in, on the screen. And so that's my triggers. I, I have different screens and different titles that make sense to me, and that's how I deliver my messages. So when you don't have the projectors, then Eric's notes are suddenly missing, and now I have to have notes, you know, the way that, you know, the normal human uh, would have notes. So, uh, but we, we were celebrating ahead of time because it's actually the video. Those of you that are getting this on video are going to be able to see everything that even the students today can't see. I can see it. It's going to be in front of me, so I'm going to have a great time uh, up here enjoying the amazing slides and the pictures of Belgium as we zoom in on Liège, and I show you Big Bertha, the big artillery uh, machine. I mean, the, all sorts of things that you'd be like, oh, I would love to see that. Well, too bad. You know, it's one of those <laughs> types of things. So a unique, unique challenge for our daily thunder. But, you know, here, we're talking about war and the challenges of war. I think we can rise up to our little challenge of not having the normal visuals today. But uh, this is part nine. And uh, it's sort of fun because I, I almost feel like I should hide the title from you guys, but I'm not going to. Uh, but not, since the group in front of me cannot see it, anyone that has the podcast, the title's like on the screen, you know, so you can't hide it very well. But this one's called The Other Eric. And it is, uh, for those of you that know the landscape of World War I or have heard me comment, because I probably mentioned this quite a few times even during World War II, there is a character that is going to grow up into great strength in the midst of World War I. And I don't want to give much more away, but I've, I've mentioned him at times. And it's high time that I introduce this character because he plays a big part in World War I. He's a German, and uh, there are a lot of reasons why he stands out to me personally. So as, as we navigate through, this is sort of his introduction into the story. It's like the world doesn't really know who this guy is until August 5th, 1914, and something is going to happen that's going to put him on the map. Ironically, you know, as I say that, if I say his name, you, most of you, unless you've heard me mention him previously, would say, I've never heard of him. And that's interesting to me. It's, it was interesting to my own soul and my own mind when I was walking through World War I originally uh, at a, in a deep level uh, quite a few years ago, is to recognize I've never heard of this guy before. And how could I never have heard of this guy? And especially as you see him in his purpose and his role that he plays in World War I, how could I never have heard of this guy before? And I don't know that I have a clear answer to that other than Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, I think, erased everything before him because of his malevolence and the extremity of his nature and his leadership style. All the leaders before him sort of, I think, melted into the background. That's, that's at least my guess because I've never, I'd never heard of this guy before. Now I hear about him all the time. When you're studying World War I, you can't help but hear of this man. 
So you notice how I've, I've done a good job of not sharing his name so far? I'm very impressed with myself because it's almost come out a couple times. All right, so Barbara Tuckman uh, says this. The French army marched to war in 1914 under a banner marked Cran. So on their flag, it said Cran. Isn't that interesting? Now, I've already introduced you in a couple different uh, sessions what Cran means. And it's not that which you pull out of a crayon box and you know, draw a little purple uh, you know, character with. But it is guts. It is boldness in battle. And so the French army are going to march in with that. But I think it's important to know that the French were not the only soldiers with guts. And one of the things about this guy that I'm going to introduce you to is you have to admit, whether you like the guy or not, he has cran. He has something that as in our spiritual lives, if we could bottle it up and take the healthy version of it, we would want it in our life. This guy is something special. It's sort of like, I think the description of uh, this man is that he had no fear. You know, and there's a few people in history that I've actually heard that said about them. One of them was William Wallace. William Wallace, when he would go into battle, he literally just didn't fear. And I've always wondered, it's like, is that real? Is that an actual thing? Because I've only been inside the body of Eric Ludi, and if bullets were whizzing by me, or if swords were you know, swinging by me, and I had some madman running at me with a sword going, Aah! I could just imagine that that could trigger something you know, that many people would call fear. And it's because it's a human response. It's almost inhuman to not fear in such a situation. Now, to give way to fear and allow fear to control you is different than the feeling of fear. Because many of us can have that, that jolt in the night where there's something that falls over in your room and you pop up, you have no idea what it was, and you have this rush of something. What is that? Well, fear would be a good description of it, but as Christians, we're like, I do not fear, though. I did not feel fear. We did feel something. That doesn't, didn't, doesn't mean we yielded to it and said, please, come on in. I want to be hospitable to you. But could you imagine what it would be like to have a life that seemed immune to it, like unable to, to have this quality of fear? Hmm. Uh, in other words, I'm just making it clear, the French were not the only soldiers with cran, with guts. So I have a picture on the screen. I know those that are present can't enjoy it. And it's tough because it's, it's a picture of, picture of what I'm going to call the Battle of Liège. And Liège, I'm going to have a nice a picture of the map of where the edge is, which is really going to be helpful for you that can't see it, right? But I have this picture of a fortress uh, on a hill in and outside of Liège. Liège is a key uh, thoroughfare. If the Germans are going to get to Paris in 950 days, I'm sorry, 950 hours, let's, let me clarify that, in 950 hours, they need to go through Liège. So it's not just through Belgium, but through Liège. And Liège knows that. In other words, the entire city itself is built with protective devices against a hostile invasion. And because there, it's a network of rivers and it's a network of roads, which means their bridges are very important, and it's surrounded by like 12 hills, even if they were man-made. I can't see a picture of it to know what it actually looked like because it was just totally devastated. However, it was, you imagine if you can, like 12 hills, even if they were man-made, which I'm not sure, surrounding this city, and each one of them had this fortress that was sort of almost like a futuristic fortress. The guy that designed these forts 
it was like one of the most brilliant things. It's like these deep underground fortresses where you have entire armies that can you know, be down there, and then you have these massive uh, cannons you know, that are shielded. So the men can shoot outside, out from the fort and have a sense of protection at the same time. In other words, you really don't want to invade Liege. Liege is surrounded by these forts and is very well capable uh, of defending itself. And so this is going to be August 5th, 1914. The, the Germans, just to go back in time a little, uh, because I'm not filling in all the, the gaps. We've already gone through in this series how this war has started, what caused it, why the Germans are even the aggressors in this. What's causing them to invade a neutral country like Belgium? Which, by the way, and I think just as a, uh, you know, to back up and make that, that statement clear again, is considered by many people to be one of the worst decisions ever that a nation has made in history. For Germany to invade neutral Belgium and to do what they did in this country is going to cost them so dearly. And uh, so this is August 5th. August 4th is when they're going to initially cross the border into Belgium, and now they're laying siege to Liège, which is not going to be that easy of a job, if I could uh, just say it bluntly. So I have a picture of Europe in 1914. Now, for those of you that have a good, you know, photographic sort of memory, you can picture it. It has that reddish-purple, you know, of the central powers in the middle. The, the blue countries are the uh, Entente, the Triple Entente powers. And uh, then we're going to zoom in and see Belgium. And then I'm going to put a star where Liège is. And so for those of you that can't see it, it's sort of near the German border, right? When you cross the border up near uh, Holland, the Netherlands uh, area. And uh, then I'm going to show a dotted line uh, from Germany to Liège, which is where we're at right now. But the, the strategy for the Germans is to go through Liège, and they're expecting, remember at this time, they're still expecting uh, Belgium to just sort of let them pass. Or maybe they'll shoot a gun into the air and say, hey, we don't want you in our country, and then let them pass. In other words, to maintain their dignity. However, Belgium is going to surprise Germany. Belgium is going to surprise the world, and they are going to say, hey, you're not allowed here. And Germany's going to say, you do know that we're 10 times more powerful than you. And that's even an understatement. They have 10 times more soldiers, but they're potentially 100 to 1,000 times more powerful. Okay, this isn't even David and Goliath. This is, you know, Goliath and the ant. You know, this, is, this isn't even a fair contest. This is a neutral country that is, has, the reason it can rest in its, in its peace is because it's protected by countries like Germany. So when Germany, who has signed a peace treaty to, and even a, an agreement and a treaty to protect Belgium if anyone invades it, is the one invading. You can just imagine how the world is going to feel about that. But this is the secret to get to Paris for the Germans. So uh, on the map, I have a picture of Paris. It popped up. It was a nice star uh, on the screen. I think all of you really enjoyed that. They couldn't see it. So I have a picture. Oh, boy, I wish you could see this, those of you that are present. If you're watching the video, you're like, why does he keep talking about I wish you could see it? It's there on the screen. But there's a picture of our guy. Okay, and you know, the one guy that's remained nameless so far that some of you are like, I know what his name is, Eric. Why don't you just say it? Because there could be some of you in here that don't know his name, and that's why I'm milking this, okay? But uh, we're ca I'm calling him on this screen the hero of Liege. Now, he's a German, and so I don't know if that's going to give you any, any indication of how the Battle of Liege is going to go. 
Okay, it's not going to go in the way that many of us in here are wired, because I think many of us have already been sold on the fact that we really like Belgium. In fact, I would say that's probably the one thing we know we do like in this. There's not a lot of heroes in this story so far. We've got one, and that is King Albert. But it's also the Belgians. There's something, the Belgians. Uh, there's some, remember, I already warned you about Belgium and Belgian. Uh, so it's the Belgians are a, of a nature that, for whatever reason, we are inclined to cheer on. The underdog is always, we have a soft spot for. So listen to what Barbara Tuckman says about this man that I am referring to. The man, this guy, I can't say his name, right? Uh, the man who within two years was to exercise greater power over the people and fate of Germany than anyone since Frederick the Great. So this man, because of this event, ironically, is actually going to rise to power. He is going to so impress his country and his country is going to laud and applaud and they want a leader like this and so you're going to see him move up through the ranks of generals he's a general to start out the war in fact he wasn't even supposed to be at liege he is there because he's so fascinated about the schlieffen plan and he wants to see how it's unfolding so he's actually on the ground he's sort of one of those guys that sort of wants to be in the middle of everything and that's why he's actually there he's not even in charge of a he doesn't even have a command He's just, he's there to sort of cheer on the troops and watch how things are unfolding. So I have a picture of Liege, I know, it's a map picture, and it's surrounded by 12 little mountains, and you can't see the mountains, but you see the name of the forts. And pretty cool picture, by the way. Uh, and then I have a picture of something known as Big Bertha, and I wish you guys could see this, those of you that are here right now, but it is a big artillery uh, device that no one up to this point in all of war history had ever seen except for on a ship. Ships can carry big cannons like this, but this is something very, very special, and it's actually going to be the secret of how the Germans, the Germans have been hiding Big Bertha for a long time. This is one of those things that takes, oh, something like a minute after it's shot to land. I mean, you shoot it from miles away, and it is quite something, and it is going to devastate these seemingly in, in, uh, impenetrable forts. And uh, so you can't see it, but this is going to be sort of the secret of how the Germans are ultimately going to win uh, over Liege uh, against those forts. But the real secret of winning Liege is our guy. Okay, remember our German that has gone nameless so far? So let me explain to you the last name I could have had. So on the screen, it says the last name I could have had. And I have my father's name, and it's Winston Ludi. And then I have my mother's name, Barbara Obendorf. And so Ludi plus Obendorf could equal Ludendorf. All right, it could have. It could have. Now, praise God, it didn't. Uh, Otherwise, my name would be Eric Ludendorff. Uh, and there's a reason why I say that, because the man we're talking about, that's his name. Eric Ludendorff. So you can just imagine why when I hear his name, when I'm studying World War I and I'm studying Liege to start out, okay? So I'm going through the Battle of Liege and then it talks about this character named Eric Ludendorff. My, you know, my ears immediately perk up. I'm like, that is one of the strangest things that there's a character from Germany named Eric Ludendorff. Well, and then you keep following World War I and this guy's name keeps coming up. In fact, he's growing in power more and more every day. He's becoming a savior of the German nation, and pretty soon he's going to be in charge of the whole thing. 
So I'm calling him the hero of Liège. So listen to Barbara Tuckman as she writes about Eric Ludendorff. Gluttony for work and a granite character had overcome lack of a Vaughn to win for Captain Eric Ludendorff the right to wear the coveted red stripes of the general staff, whose ranks he entered at the age of 30 in 1895. So you notice all those Germans have Vaughn in their name, and he didn't have that, you know, and that's sort of a luxury and sort of a privilege, and he didn't have that. He had to overcome that. That's a good statement of Eric Ludendorff. He's an overcomer. Although his thick body, his blonde mustache over a harsh down-curving mouth, his round double chin, and that bulge at the back of the neck, which Emerson called the mark of the beast, characterized Ludendorff as belonging to the opposite physical type from the aristocratic Schlieffen. He modeled himself on Schlieffen's hard, shut-in personality. Deliberately friendless and forbidding, the man who within two years was to exercise greater power over the people and fate of Germany than anyone since Frederick the Great remained little known or liked. None of the usual reminiscences of friends and family or personal stories or sayings accumulated around him. Even as he grew in eminence, he moved without attendant anecdotes, a man without a shadow." Isn't Barbara Tuckman such a unique writer? I mean, it's like, I don't know if other people, you know, that are listening to this series are moved by the way she describes things, but I'm always like, oh, wow, that's really good. I like, want to read it again, even though it's the description of Eric Ludendorff, you know, which I really don't want to hear again. It's like, oh, say it again, Barbara. The Belgians prove their mettle. Now, I think you guys know that the Belgians, at least to the degree that we've covered so far, that they showed themselves pretty stout-hearted. I mean, surprisingly stout-hearted for a nation that Germany thought was going to lay it down and let them pass, or was going to be bought off. But the Belgians are going to prove their mettle. August 5th, 1914 is a huge day in their, their country. So this is how Barbara Tuckman uh, describes it. Brussels, on August 6th, went mad with excitement at news of the repulse administered to the Germans the day before. Okay, we got some, uh, <clears throat> some foreign language here. Uh, that Grand Victor Belge, okay, boy, I, I blew that one, I'm sure, proclaimed newspaper extras, which I'm guessing is like Grand Victory for Belgium. Okay, that's, that's me interpreting uh, in a rough hewn way. Happy, ardent people crowded the cafes, congratulated one another, boasted of vengeance, stayed up all night to celebrate, and next morning delightedly read to each other a Belgian communique which said that 125,000 Germans had completely failed to make any impression and three army corps engaged in the attack were cut up and useless. Echoing the optimism, the Allied press reported the German route complete. In other words, they're done. We've defeated them. With several regiments having surrendered, many prisoners taken, 20,000 German casualties, the defenders everywhere successful, the invaders decisively checked, and their advance brought to a standstill. Wouldn't that feel good, you know, to hear news like that if you're the allies? You hear this, see this, or hear about this mighty movement of the German army, and they're immediately stopped by little Belgium. And just imagine how the Belgians felt. It's like, what euphoria. That would be an amazing feeling. But there was something that the Belgians didn't know. There was a German who didn't take defeat sitting down. This is truly a remarkable story about this man because the Germans really are not in a happy mood right now. 
So if you, you can imagine if the Belgians are getting that sort of newspaper uh, feedback, that there's a lot to celebrate for the Belgians. That means there's a lot to cry over if you're the Germans. Because you have such a superior force, you didn't expect Belgium to do anything in the first place, but not only did they do something, but they totally destroyed you. And I'm not going into the story because it's rather bloody, and I don't know if you've noticed that I've sort of skipped over a lot of blood in this. This is a very bloody day for the Germans. And it's the first taste of the blood of World War I. And it is shocking uh, to the Germans. They're the ones that are tasting it. It's like, wow. So this is what combat is like in uh, the 20th century. And that's what's going through their mind. It's like, wow, this is a whole new level of firepower. And there is one guy that is going to be there when everyone else is depressed. Everyone else has fallen to pieces. The Germans are rocked to the core. There's a guy in the camp. And his name is Eric Ludendorff. But he's not there to lead in, a, in that sense. He doesn't have a direct command over troops. He's there just because he's there. And that's one of the remarkable things about this story. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way. During the night of August 5, Emick's brigades reassembled on their separate roads for a renewed attack. So Emick is going to be a German uh, general. Scheduled to begin at midnight. General Ludendorff, accompanying the 14th Brigade, which occupied the center of the German line, found the troops gloomy and nervous. Ahead, the fortress guns loomed fearfully. Many officers doubted that infantry attack could prevail against them. So you, the entire attitude of the Germans is despondent, it's sort of like, we can't do this. There's no way we can take these forts. We don't have the ability in our infantry. Rumor reported that an, an entire cyclist company sent out to reconnoiter earlier in the day had been annihilated. A column taking the wrong road in the darkness bumped up against another, tangled, and came to a confused halt. So in other words, all the news coming back to the Germans is bad, 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 bad. You ever been in one of those moments in your life where you get a whole string of bad news? And it's, I mean, there's a reason why it's strung together. The enemy is very good at stringing bad news together. Sometimes he'll like hold off with some news and then string it together and then give it to you all at once. Sometimes it's like Job when you get it all at once. Remember, it's like he gets one messenger from this way, one messenger from this way, one messenger from this way. It's meant to sort of startle your soul into uh, a para paralysis and a give, a give up uh, type of attitude. And that's definitely what's happening to the Germans here. So Ludendorff, riding up to find the cause of the trouble, he's like, what's going on here? What, what, what's causing this trouble? Discovered the orderly of General von Wusso, commander of the 14th Brigade. So remember, he's with the 14th Brigade. He's just sort of visiting and sort of sharing sights on this, and he's realizing something's fallen to pieces. And so he finds the orderly of General von Wusso, who's the commander of the 14th Brigade, leading the general's horse with empty saddle. The general's not on his horse. It's just empty. Von Wusso had been killed by machine gun fire along the road ahead. The general in charge of the 14th is dead. Into the story steps Eric Ludendorff. So I'm going to call this, for lack of a better term, the Eric moment. You see, you remember, the title of this is The Other Eric. Okay, so you have to recognize that when I study history, I have a tendency to stick myself in it. I would highly encourage you to do the same. Now, because I'm the one teaching, you're going to notice I use Winstons and Eric's. You know, they, they stick out to me because my name is Eric Winston. And so when I'm studying history, it's easy to get into skin. But Eric Ludendorff is not really the skin I want to get into, technically. 
At the same time, there's something about what he is going to do here that I want to circle and highlight. Because even though I'm not a fan of Eric Ludendorff, okay, I'm just going to go on record as that, I really like how he handles this situation. There is something about it that is very attractive to my soul, and I, I would say for all of us as believers, when we run into one of those situations where it seems like we're paralyzed and all the bad news is coming our way, that this behavior is needed. This, you know, when you study the, the series, uh, the spiritual lessons from Alfred the Great, this is exactly what Alfred brought to his people. So it's not just bad guys that have this. This is a quality. And it's something that the Spirit of God has. But we need to allow it to be cultivated. So I'm calling this the Eric moment, partly to inspire myself. It's like, yeah, that's the way I want to respond. But in these moments, I've been in these moments many times in my life. This is not an unusual situation to me. I've never been in the Battle of Liege in that exact circumstance, but I've been in a moment where it seems like all hell is breaking loose in my life and hell is winning. Okay, that's those types of moments where the enemy is just sort of like, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up, run, 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 run. Over and over, you have this panic that is beginning to set in in your soul. And so when I'm calling this the moment or the Eric moment for my sake, right, the name of this message is the other Eric, you know, so I can stick it in there. Here's the question. Eric, what do you know? Eric, what have you been taught? I could say to me, Eric, what do you preach? What have you got? What is it that you have right now? You see, when you are dizzied, it is very, very important to go to the rock. It is very, very important to go to truth in those moments and not allow your emotions to lead you. In a time of crisis, in a time of great noise, in a time of great bomb blast, emotions can oftentimes scatter truth in our soul, and truth like, feels like it just got lost, like I can't remember a thing. I've had moments like that where I am staring, and I, I can't like, even recall one now, but I felt it, where it's just like, God, I can't remember truth all of a sudden. What is truth? <laughs> Who are you? What do I know? And that's exactly the question you need to start asking. What is your position? That's why I want you to be thinking these things. You need to know that in a time of battle. I am in Christ. Yeah, that's right. You have the armor of God. Remember that armor that you have. You have truth. You have righteousness. You have salvation. You have a preparation to deliver a gospel right now. You have spirit. You have faith. You have precisely what you need to stand right now and to be bold and to win. Like, how do you win in a, in a day of defeat? How, how do you win? The French had a, had a common saying that uh, you lose a battle only when you acknowledge that you're losing. The moment you go from winning to losing in your mind is the moment you've lost the battle. It's a fascinating statement that the French, that was their, part of their military doctrine, is basically it's like we never acknowledge defeat. So even if we lost it, we won't ever say we did. <laughs> fascinating, interesting concept, right? But spiritually, there's something to that. You see, the French are oftentimes, that's the power of positive thinking. But for us believers, we actually do have a victory that does not fade away no matter if it looks like there's defeat in front of us. There really is a victory. And to acknowledge defeat when in actuality God is on the throne and he has defeated the enemy doesn't make any sense. So don't accept defeat. So I'm calling it the Eric moment. If you need to stick your own name in there, 
Well, then do, because this is how Christianity functions. Christianity is proven in this moment. So Barbara Tuckman says this, Ludendorff, with instant boldness, seized opportunity by the throat. He took command of the brigade and gave the signal for attack. Uh, so he, he goes from, I mean, everyone's like, we're losing, everything's falling apart. You know, even our general got shot. I mean, everything's terrible. And there's Ludendorff. And he's with instant boldness, seizes opportunity by the throat. Isn't that a great statement? He took command of the brigade and gave the signal not to retreat, but to attack. The signal for attack that was intended to pierce the interval between Fort Flaron and Fort de Evergne. <laughs> that was Belgium for strong fort. So I have a picture of those 12 forts surrounding uh, Liège, and then I zoom in on it, and then I have an arrow which is showing the pathway that Ludendorff is leading the 14th into. He's cutting between two key forts, which is at the very center of the German operations. Remember, he's at the center of the line. That's where he chose to be. It's like, yeah, I want to be there, where the 14th is. And so then the, the general, the commander of the 14th, is killed, and he seizes this situation and leads the 14th into an impossible maneuver. They go straight through the two forts. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, haven't you seen what's happened up to this point? There's something about this. Like I said, there's something about this spiritually that is very uh, tasty to my soul. That to go on the offensive in the very moment when defensive or retreat seems like the most reasonable calculation is very fascinating to me because it's going to change this entire battle. Barbara Tuckman says this, Ludendorff, so I'm going to summarize this because this is a huge story, right? This is a big battle. It goes on for a long time. But this very night, all throughout the night, he's leading the 14th between these two uh, forts and makes it, okay? For some uh, unspeakable reason un you know, that the Belgians probably cannot even to this day figure out, one of their forts did not shoot or they did not see this entire 14th movement through. And so as a result, they were able to get through, even though no one up to this point had been able to get through. And so Ludendorff is presuming that either that fort has been taken, or he's, he's like trying to reason through this. So this is what it says. And this, the phraseology of, uh, phraseology of this, I'm going to play on as we move forward. Ludendorff, thinking the citadel had been taken. So in the middle of Liège is the citadel. It's sort of like the capital center where the leadership is that is controlling the other forts. Ludendorff, thinking the citadel had been taken by, taken by an advance guard, sent ahead for that purpose, drove up the steep winding road in a staff car with a single adjutant. Reaching the courtyard, he found no German soldiers in possession. He's looking around thinking the, the Germans must possess this. The advance guard having not yet arrived. So there's no Germans there, but this is the center of Liège. So he nevertheless unhesitatingly banged on the gates and on their being opened to him received the surrender of the citadel from the remaining Belgians, Belgian soldiers inside. He was 49, twice the age of Napoleon Bonaparte in 1793, and Liège was his Toulon, which if you know history, Napoleon gained his name and his fame and his power because 
of a very, very similar act at Toulon. And in this situation, this is going to make Ludendorff great. You have to realize what he's doing. He is walking up to a citadel, which no German has actually reached yet. He thought they were, which is what initially caused him to go up to it. And then he looks around, there's like no Germans there. Instead, he still bangs on the gate and demands their surrender. I don't know what the Belgians were thinking, but I'm, I'm guessing they're thinking we're surrounded. When in actuality, it's just one group that got through. And so they surrender the city to Ludendorff. He single-handedly took over Liège. This is one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard. Of course, all the Germans were thinking the same thing. We're like, we like this guy. How do you say his name? Ludendorff. And so that became a household name. In Berlin, the Kaiser, remember uh, William, uh, William II? We've gotten familiar with William. And I think some of us actually sort of like William. We're not exactly sure if we should like him or not, but I think we feel a pity for him. He's just, I, I picture him as just sort of a young kid in a you know, big man's body and you know, his, his big man responsibilities. In Berlin, the Kaiser was ecstatic. At the beginning, when it had appeared that the Belgians were going to fight after all, he had bitterly reproached Moltke. Remember Moltke? He's, you know, the gloomy Gus. Now you see what you've brought, that you have brought down the English down on me without any reason. But as the, at the news of the fall of Liège, he called him his dearest Julius. I remember that was his name, Julius, and then that was sort of like the Gus. Uh, and as Moltke recorded it, I was rapturously kissed. So the Kaiser is going to kiss Moltke. He's so excited banging on the door of the citadel. This action in your life spiritually, I want to see if we can sort of focus in on it. That there is something that is necessary in your soul to take command of this body. The idea of self-control is that, you know, because when you first hear the word self-control, you're thinking, oh, okay, I need to control myself. And then you try and you dig in your own pockets to control yourself, but this is a fruit of the Spirit. The way for self-control to work is you first must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moves in when you accept Christ, there is a change of ownership. You go from old man to new man. And now this operation is under the governance, the superintendence, the kingship of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit has reigned now. His very spirit can move in and take control and first things first, you get off that throne, you give up your control, he controls you. Now, you have power in this body to control it. See, most of us just don't know that. But you have a command position in your body to tell your body how it is going to behave. You tell your sexuality, you tell your thought life, you tell your tongue, they don't tell you. And that's an important shift that you need because there are moments when you can feel like the German soldiers being rooted where you could give up and just say, yeah, I guess sin rules over me. But you're a believer. Don't you recognize who you are? You are in Christ. You have been grafted into his life, his power. You have access to his grace. So boldly take that position and utilize it and enter the throne of grace where you may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. You have a liege that needs to be taken. You have something that's firing at you saying, hey, you can't take this territory. Now, granted, I am cheering for the Belgians in this story, so we sort of need to 
you know, squint as we, as we share this to recognize there's a truth in there, even though we don't really want the Germans to win, right? And Christianity is not a great picture of the German Empire at this time. Uh, so, but this idea of banging on the door of the citadel, I have, I'm taking a quote from Barbara Tuckman and I'm sort of changing it and I'm calling it the command of the Christian. It is going to talk about Ludendorff thinking the citadel had been taken by an advanced guard sent ahead for that purpose. In other words, he is presuming the Germans have taken this already. So that's why he's headed in there and he's like, oh yeah, well the Germans have already taken this. Well, they hadn't. However, as a believer, you need to recognize that is precisely how we reason. We're like, Jesus has already taken the citadel, so why am I afraid of all these guns? He's, he's already gained control at the center of all this. So I'm going to say it this way. The believer in Christ, thinking the citadel had been taken by an advanced guard, sent ahead for that purpose. Unhesitatingly, this is a believer, banged on the gates and on their being open to him received the surrender of the citadel. So if you were to look at your body as sort of that citadel, and this hand, these eyes, this mouth, this heart, that this territory that we have that the enemy's like, that's mine. I've controlled it your entire life. You can't have it. And he's shooting some, you know, some guns at you, and they're pretty impressive guns. That you need to, in a sense, have an Eric moment where you rise up and you say, no, we actually have the greater power here. Let's go at it. And you go to those gates and you bang on them. And you say, I demand your surrender. Now, when you feel as small as we feel, it almost sounds like laugh out loud ridiculous to do something like that. Until you realize how big Jesus is. And you recognize the authority with which you are banging. In the authority of the name of Jesus, I command the surrender of this citadel. So banging on the door of the citadel, I'm going to say Paul style, because Paul the apostle banged on the door of the citadel. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He brings his body into subjection. He bangs on the citadel and says, I demand you to surrender. Any control you think you have over this body, I demand you to surrender to the authority of Christ in this life. Imagine if you were to approach your body that way. Because ironically, when we are being built for war, we're not being built to go run on the citadel of Liege necessarily. I'm not saying that isn't a possibility that could happen as an extrapolation of this. However, it's first and foremost the citadel of our own life. You see, Jesus wants to conquer us so that we can then be useful to serve this world and to serve his purposes. Banging on the door of the citadel, David style. Yeah, David banged on the door of the citadel too. And uh, the way he did it was very interesting. Listen to this. Psalm 42, 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. It's very interesting, and of course, if you remember the Psalms, because this isn't something we oftentimes will think about when we read David speaking like this in the Psalm, that he is commanding someone. Who's he commanding? What's he doing when he says, hope in God? Who's he talking to? He's talking to his soul. Isn't that a weird thought to think of David commanding his soul to hope? 
for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Hope in God, O soul. You see, this is a critical dimension in that moment when the bad news is flooding in. That you maintain command of this soul in this environment and don't let the troops lose their head. Hope in God, O my soul. You must command in the authority of Christ. You must remember your position in those moments because that is what defines the true Christian hero. So Psalm 103, 1 through 2, and then verse 22. This is David's, now just imagine, this is the same command type of thing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now we've all heard these things, but we don't really think of them as a command, right? Because we're, you know, we usually have them in worship songs. We're like, bless the Lord, O my soul. And it doesn't sound like a command to our soul, right? We're just saying something that sounds like we're blessing God, which is true, However, there's a command in there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So I'm going to tell the body of Eric Ludi that we're going to bless the Lord. All that is within me is going to bless the Lord. You see, you're taking command of a citadel, and you're saying this is going to be used for the kingdom of Jesus Christ and for no other purpose. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless the Lord, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Isn't that good? I don't know if you guys are catching the vision, but this is like, um, this is called uh, an Eric moment right here. Don't you guys like that? I could see one of you is like, no, no, it's called a ha-ha moment. You've already renamed it in your mind. That's good. I want you to take ownership of this. Psalm 146.1, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You ever, ever been in those moments where you don't really feel like praising the Lord? You command your soul. Here's what we're going to do. All right. We're taking the 14th, and we're going right through these two forts, and we're taking Liege. And what's your soul going to say? Your soul is going to complain about that. It's going to talk about all the difficulties that may come with that. It's going to bark back at you, and you command it. It's the nice thing about being a general. Uh, is you can command your troops to do exactly what they're supposed to do, right? But you need to know that your high command has given you general-like authority over the troops of your body. But you need to exert it. Your troops will run roughshod over you if you do not maintain the command. So banging on the door of the citadel. Now, I didn't know what to call this, so I called it you and me style. This is like what we do. I could have said we style, right? But this is what we do. And I got this out of uh, Judges. It's Judges 5.21b. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Isn't that good? So I'm going to change it and do a paraphrase of it for our message today. Oh, my soul, bang on the door of that citadel. Oh, my soul, bang right now. It's like, I, this is like, their capital. This is like their center of power and authority. And you want me to just go up and bang on a door? Yeah, and tell them in the authority of Christ's name that they will surrender. Like, who's dumb enough to do that? You see, it's not actually a lack of wisdom or smarts. It's the presence of them to do this because you actually are a believer and you know what the work of the cross has accomplished and you are convinced of it. 
Remember, there are two ways to bang on a citadel. So this is the key. When you get the other Eric, you have this guy is pulling an Eric, right? He's, he's, it's an Eric moment, and he's doing what I really want to do. I mean, when I see him function, I'm like, yeah, I like that guy. What's his name? Eric? Eric Ludendorff? Sounds sort of like my name. Yeah, I want to do that. Then I watch the rest of his life. It's like, well, not totally like that, right? And you see, there's always two. And there's two ways to handle command. And when I teach, you know, when I, in World War II, I taught a lot on Stalin and Hitler's leadership style. And it's very interesting because it works. It works, but it's not God. And it's not godly. And it's its motivation is fear and terror. They had an order, Stalin issued an order in World War II that was, I think it was 217, order number 217. You take any step back in battle, like one step back, and your officer behind you is commanded to shoot you. If your officer doesn't shoot you, the one behind him is commanded to shoot the officer. Whew, guess what? It works. It's tremendous motivation, but it's not godly motivation. In other words, there's an insipid, dark version of boldness and courage. There's an insipid, dark version of leadership and control and command. And I'm not interested in that probably any more than you are. But there is something very, very special that that is a counterfeit of. And it is the leadership command strength of Jesus Christ. And this is how his Holy Spirit leads us. And so as a result, when it comes to your citadel, I'm not wanting you to grow up to be like Eric Ludendorff. And you look back at this message, you go, yeah, I remember Eric teaching on Eric Ludendorff. I was so inspired, and so I really want to grow up to be like Eric Ludendorff. No, no, no. No, I don't want that. But in a strange sense, I want you to take something out of this. See, I had to come up with a creative way to introduce the character, right? At the same time, teach World War I. At the same time, create some encouragement through it. Because how do you teach on some of these things and bring about an edifying end? You have to admit, that's, that's not very easy with some of these stories, especially when the bad guys are doing the good things, right, in your story. This is a tricky one. And yet there's a right way to do it. And I would say what we are talking about actually has a godly version of it that sees the 14th without lead. And it sees the scattering of the troops, sees the despondency of the troops. And this happens internally in a life. And this is, many of you can recognize, even when I'm describing how this can work on us as an individual in those moments of crisis, and how there needs to be a command to the soul to remember the truth in those moments. And in those moments, you go on the offensive, not the defensive. In those moments, you go and bang on the citadel, and you tell the devil who's boss. That's critical on the individual side, but also on the corporate side. As a leader, as a Christian leader, if you feel the hearts of your congregation melting, as a father, if you feel the hearts of your family melting because of fears and different things that are happening in the world, it is critical that you take the lead, just as Ludendorff did, to raise the understanding and to remind them of who's in control to remind them of the truth of Jesus Christ in those very moments. Because not everyone knows how to take command of their soul yet. And as a result, that modeling is critical for each one of us, for everyone around us. In a dire, desperate situation, 
That is the moment when the Christian shines. I still remember when we had a tornado here in Windsor, and we were in, uh, my brother used to have a coffee shop in town called Loodles, and so we were in Loodles, and we had, like, ah, it was like, uh, it wasn't baseball size, but it was between golf ball and baseball size hail. Never seen anything quite like it. And the, and the, the windshields in the parking lot, because it was a big, we were looking out through the glass windows of the coffee shop, the windshields are like psh, psh, shattering. It was like, whoa, this is intense. And then a tornado is headed straight for us, and it did. It hit, it hit Windsor and straight on. And it looked like it was headed straight for the coffee shop, too. And so we went back into this inner where there was no uh, basement. We went back into the middle, and there was a, a school that was visiting at the time. And I, I remember I had this great confidence in the moment that God had us right where he wanted us. And it was one of those strange, inexplicable things where it was, it was a key moment. I could almost feel it even in looking back that God was teaching me, like, I have you right where I want you. I've put you here for this moment. So give and serve those around you. So there was just sort of that panicky fear, you know, because people couldn't get into a basement. They felt vulnerable and a tornado's headed straight for them. And so there's this little group of uh, kids from the elementary school that were crying. And uh, I said something like, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Would you guys mind if I prayed for you? And, you know, using the, the line of being a pastor in moments like that works. I don't know why, but it makes you feel like, oh, you must be official. You, yeah, you could do that. And I've had people come up to me since that were there in there and say, that was one of the most important things. Thank you. They remember it vividly the strength that was given them by someone standing and saying, we are safe. Our God is in control. Watch. And there's something about that peace that comes in those moments when the leadership has confidence in who God is. So the question for each of us is to, to begin to wrestle with is, first of all, are we learning to take command in those moments in our life? Because when you learn to take command of your own citadel, then in those other moments, when the crisis strikes this earth, you are prepared to be a strong one, to bring leadership to those around you. So, in other words, this is what it says on the screen, there are two Eric's. See, the other Eric, there's, there's two Eric's. There's two renditions of you, too. In other words, there's a rendition of you that could function in the flesh, and there's a rendition of you that can function in the spirit. So I have a picture on the screen. I really wish you guys could see it. It's really good. It's that one picture of me from Realpolitik. I don't remember if you guys remember that picture. And then Eric Ludendorff. And we're, you know, we're both on the screen. There, there's, there's two options here of which way you can go. And if you were looking at it on the screen, then I put my, my face would be on this side. So I was putting myself on the spirit side. You know, it's, maybe it's just, you know, because I really want to be on the spirit side. And I don't want to be with Ludendorff. But, you know, it was, it was all tactical and strategic. So here's a quote from Eric Ludendorff. Now, I'm going forward in time just to give you a hint because I'm going to bring him up in the story again. So we'll, we'll ref reference back to this, but this is just going to show you sort of the nature of this man. Adolf Hitler, says Ludendorff, is the only man who has any political sense. Go and listen to him one day. He is going to be a proponent of Adolf Hitler. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm fast forwarding. This is way into the future, right? As he gains control, as he passes off control, what is he shoving the nation of Germany towards? Now, I'm going to give a quote from the other Eric. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only man who has any ability to truly save. Go and listen to him today. 
See, there's a difference between these two Erics, right? Here's another quote from Eric Ludendorff. I reject Christianity because it is Jewish, because it is international, and because in cowardly fashion it preaches peace on earth. So then I have a quote from a guy named Eric Ludy. I am a Christian and happy to be. And I cherish the fact that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth as a true self-sacrifice and warrior king. There's two ways you could go with this, and I'm just going to encourage you to go in the direction of the spirit version. But just as Ludendorff banged on that citadel door, I want you to consider doing the same. There is a situation in your life, whether it's today or tomorrow or the next day, you know, that's up in the, in the future, where you will be tested. And the metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, of your soul will be tried. What's going to be found there? Is it real? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? The way to ensure that it is, is to take the moment we're in now and yield our life to the control of Jesus Christ. And then take the spiritual fist that you have and bang on the citadel of your body and let it know who's in charge now. You don't need to say you are in charge. You say Jesus is in charge. And then when your body asks, well, then why are you telling me? Because I am his spokesman. And I'm the one that's going to ensure that you obey. And if you don't, I'm going to tell him that you're not. So you better start acting right because this body is now ruled by King Jesus. See? This is how we live as believers. So let's bang on the citadel, but let's do it the right way. Father, give us that growl, that gusto of soul. Lord, when we reach those moments, I pray that we would be ready like Paul, like David, to command our souls into agreement, to tell them who is boss, to, to remind them of the truth, to remind them of our position in Jesus. You have already won the victory. May we march on the citadel of Liege and bang on those gates. Lord Jesus, you are good and faithful and true, and we love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.